1: guys welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda and danny of danny what's up man how are you
2: chilling man as per usual well maybe not so much it's tax season and i just got a pretty big bill but aside
1: from that i'm just still chilling <laughs> well it means you made money yeah that's true it means you made money but yeah taxes suck um before we get started on this show though before we go on mindless banter This is a reminder to fill out the survey, the SurveyMonkey survey in the show notes. It is the number one way to support our show. Just fill it out. You can win 500 Amazon dollars and it's super easy to do it. It takes about two minutes. So just do that. It gives us great feedback on the show. And uh, of course, you have a chance to win free money uh, Amazon dollars. I'm legally obliged to say Amazon dollars, but whatever (laughs) you spend all your money on Amazon anyway. So, um, yeah, just wanted to do that before we jump into today's show, uh, on another note, before we jump into our main topic, I'm getting started on my musical. Oh, really? (laughs) So the musical, the musical is coming along. So, um, I'll, I'll give you the quick pitch real quick. Okay. and And let me know what you think. In the right, audience, but everyone, let me know what you think in, in the reviews. So, here's uh, my musical, and it's called Color Revolution.
0: <laughs> All right,
1: <laughs> get ready to be swept away on a journey to a fictional Central Asian country in Color Revolution, the new Broadway musical that tells the story of Selena, a young woman with a passion for music and a dance and who becomes an unwitting pawn in a game of political intrigue. Selena loves her country and its people, but when American intelligence recognizes her ability to inspire crowds, they recruit her to lead a movement against her government. At first, Selena is thrilled to have the chance to use her talents for good, but soon she discovers that the Americans have their own hidden agenda, to overthrow her government and install a puppet leader who will allow foreign oligarchs to exploit the country's natural resources. As the plot thickens and the stakes grow higher, Selena finds herself torn between her love for her country and her loyalty to her fellow citizens, on the one hand, and her sense of betrayal by the Americans on the other. Will she stay true to her ideals, or will she be swayed by the lore of power and privilege? Color Revolution explores the complex moral and political issues at the heart of contemporary global politics, while also offering audiences a feast for the senses with a vibrant music, dance, and spectacles. With a cast of talented performers, a movie score, and breathtaking choreography, Color Revolution is sure to be a hit with theater, theater goers of all ages and backgrounds. I don't know about all ages and backgrounds, but wow. Okay. <laughs> so there's, my, so there's my, uh, my pitch. I'm just trying to find a wealthy producer to make this happen. And uh, then we'll start writing songs and doing choreography, but we got to find we got to do some more world building because right now we're at fictional Asian a Central Asian country. The name, I think, for the country, and let me know what you think of this, is called Gorkistan. Gorkistan. Gork Gorkistan. Okay, where'd you get that name from? I don't know. I just I uh, just just thinking of a funny sounding word with Stan at the end, and I said Gork. Gorkistan? It sounds very Star Trek y to me.
2: Okay. And, Gorkistan uh, it
1: is. <laughs> I'll give you the backstory. Gorkistan is a fictional country located in the mountainous region of Central Asia, bordered by Kazakhstan to the north, Uzbekistan to the west, and Tajikistan to the south, and China to the east. The country is rich in natural resources, uh, specifically oil and natural gas, but has struggled with political instability and corruption since gaining independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. The population of Gorkistan is predominantly ethnic Gorkans who speak Gorky, <laughs> Gorky. A, a Turkic language with Persian and Russian influences. The country is also home to several minority groups, including Uzbeks, Tajiks, and Kazakhs. Gorkistan has a presidential system of government with a directly elected president who serves as both head of state and head of government. The country has a history of authoritarian rule with limited political freedoms and a government that is often accused of human rights abuses.
2: Was Gorkistan part of the Soviet
1: Union? Gorkistan was a former Soviet state. Yes. Okay. Huh. And and then um, so there's there's a strong man uh, dictator in Gorkistan who kind of um, who's been in power. He's the son of the dictator who was uh, actually part of the uh, Communist Party in the Soviet Union. Okay, and, makes uh, sense. He broke Checks off out. He he is the son, so he inherited the presidential system about ten years ago. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what his name is yet, but he'll he'll get a name. He has a son. He has a son that the the son is going to be modeled after uh, Uday Hussein. Okay. So kind of like a sociopath, sicko. Okay. And then um, I don't know. There's got to be some other characters as well. You know, there's going to be the president. There, and then there's going to be some rich oligarch who uh, who uh, is is twisting things by the. By in, in the you know behind behind the curtain, um, here here's my my uh, my Gorka right wing nationalist group. If you want to hear about them, yeah, let's hear it. The the Gorka nationalist movement, also known as the Gorka First Party, which formed First. in the aftermath of the country's independence from the Soviet Union. It espouses a nationalist ideology that seeks to promote the interests of the Gorka ethnic group and protect their cultural identity from perceived threats of globalization and immigration. The movement is known for its extreme right-wing views, and its members have been linked to acts of violence against ethnic minor- minorities and political opponents.
2: Yikes. This sounds all too real.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very real, but you gotta, you got to add some layers of backstory. Of course, so I don't. I don't know how what? far we want to go back in Gorka in Gorka history. Well, well I Gorka think you go identity. all the way
2: back, right? I think based back on to all the World of World
1: the... War II. the Gorka the Gorka First Party actually collaborated with Hitler.
2: Oh, okay, yeah, I yeah, guess. Yeah, they're
1: that... very anti. They're very anti-communist.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess that would make sense. But I say you go back even further. Like, you know how all good nationalist stories have like an ancient history or some shit like that. I think you, you know, you make up some like
1: creation myth that would be interesting the ancient the the ancient gorka empire yeah and like oh. the creation but they have to have some kind of god you know and uh they're 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 um they're orthodox uh christians okay in, in no, no no but before
2: that you know what i mean so they can have an ancient like before jesus was around they have to have like an ancient tie
1: an ancient ties okay you know so all right, so the Gork, the Gork, the, in the Gorkan Empire. All right, so you want to get like a deity. Uh, yeah, but, but plot twist, the deity is an alien. Okay, come on. We're, 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 <laughs> lo, we're, we're losing, we're leaving the, the realm of reality. Because remember, this is a musical. <laughs> that might be kind the, of the funny f- to have like a the, flying saucer. The purpose come in at of the end. this is to write a, <laughs> as a Broadway musical with Selena. I was told, my wife told me we had to change the name Selena because there's another, Musical with a woman named Selena, so we have to change that name. But okay. I think Gorkistan is definitely a fixture. We need to come up with the president's name, and then um you know maybe like some ambassador character, um, and then we'll we'll start writing songs. So what's the
2: vibe of this? Is this like a serious drama it's or a comedy? It, it's a comedy. Okay.
1: Yeah. All right. So then, the of, think of have Book to of Mormon.
2: The names have to be funny. Then.
1: Yeah, Gorkos is kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like the
2: names of the people, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're they'll be funny. They'll 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 be um, we'll, we'll think of some good ones. But it's it's supposed to be a kind of a, a lighthearted film for everyone. But the main <laughs> thing is the is the um, is the um, ability. We're, we're going to have great choreography. Like we're okay. going to have the best choreography on Broadway. We okay. Are the best, the best, the best choreography. On Broadway, it's the Since best.
2: they since they border China, I imagine that there's some influence there. Can we have like a Shen Yun style like dance at some point? You know, Shen Yun? No, they're they're
1: they're, <laughs> they're very ethnically they're they're very they're racist there in Gorka, it's Gorkistan. <laughs> <laughs> the dark underbellies of Gorkistan very hostile towards towards uh towards uh, other other ethnic groups. Um, okay, we can we can actually, let, let's build on this in future episodes. I don't want to take okay. up the entire, all, all of our time with Gorkistan because we actually have some some topics we want to speak about. But all right. all this, right. this is the start of something. So um, on today's show, shameless um, kind of segue into the actual plot. I know that probably took about 10 minutes, but it's funny and uh, we enjoy doing things like that. So um, we're going to talk about some really weird stories. As a kind of a follow-up to the last couple of episodes that we've been doing, and the last couple of episodes, we've been mainly talking about Israel and Palestine, and um, in that research, I've always heard of uh, Meir Kahani, never really dived into him, and, and, and usually my research for, about Kahani was always, was always through reading books about Al-Qaeda, Mm-hmm. Because Al-Qaeda famously assassinated, well, at the time, they didn't know it was was an Al-Qaeda group, but he was assassinated in 1990. And he was um, essentially like the first really Islamic terrorist uh, victim in America. So it's kind of like one of the key points in the timelines when you're looking at, um, you know, the groups that eventually carried out 9-11. So um, I, I never had known that much about Meir Kahani, and and his name comes up a lot when talking about the current political situation in Israel because a lot of the ultra-Orthodox, uh, like Itamar uh, Binger, uh, ben- actually mm-hmm. worked with Kahani back in the day, or back in back in the 1980s. He was a disciple of him, and, and Kahani, to, to make a long story short, he was a very extreme right-wing Israeli politician and, and thinker and influencer um, originally from the U.S. And he had this very interesting career. So on today's episode, uh, we're just going to talk about Kahani and his eventual assassination because, honestly, it's just a strange story. And um, I was kind of enamored by it. And, and, and honestly, I'm still reading about it and and, you know, in the process of learning more about this. But... I guess on today's show, we're just going to talk about what we've learned over the past couple of weeks and, um, you know, hopefully entertained you guys. But I guess we could start out with uh, Kahani's uh, very interesting career. Is that a good place to start? Yeah, totally. So, Mayer Kahani, he's from Flatbush, Brooklyn, and uh, Flatbush, New York, to an Orthodox Jewish family. And he becomes... He's... Um, he received the modern Orthodox rabbinical ordination in Howard Beach, Queens, which is actually close to where I grew up in the early 1960s. And, um, he ends up getting fired from several of his rabbi jobs. And, um, you know, he has a couple of other jobs during this time. He's in the media. He writes for a couple of different newspapers. He's also a reporter for the New York Yankees. So he's sports he's reporter. A sport. yeah. he's, he also has a side hustle as a sports reporter. Um, but he's, he's a strange guy with a lot of different odd jobs who, who um very elusive. And at some point in his young career, at this point he's in his, I believe, 20s or 30s, he abruptly moves to Israel. And he links up with an ultra-nationalist Zionist group called Betar. And when he comes back to the States, through his contacts, he gets connected with the FBI where he actually becomes an informant, so he he goes by the name the 1960s. He starts going by the name Michael King, Michael King, and essentially starts living kind of a dual life as Mayer Kahani and then Michael King. And Michael King was basically, you know, his his pseudonym who would infiltrate um, mainly right wing groups so he would he infiltrated the john birch society for example Mm -hmm. and um you know in the in the 60s the fbi basically was infiltrating everyone and um you know i'm not an expert on on their infiltration on the john birch society or even the john birch society in general but they what i've read is that they went after the john birch society to kind of compensate because they were they were already in so many left-wing groups like and so many, like, uh, like black nationalist groups, like the Panthers and all that, said, like, hey, we got to go into some right-wing groups as well. Why not do the John Burke Society? I don't know. if That's probably not the full story. but um, They needed to be more inclusive. Yeah. They needed to to uh, equally infiltrate everyone. I mean, now, like, every single group. I, I mean, right now, it's so obvious. You know that group um, with white masks? Have you seen them online? I think they're called Patriot Front or something like that. I've heard the name, I don't really know too much about them though, so they're these guys who show up out of nowhere. they have these white masks mm-hmm. and um, they start you know talking about uh, just kind of wild stuff, and it's so obvious that these guys are all feds. It's like they're <laughs> either there's either two options they're either feds or they're such losers that everyone automatically thinks that they're feds because they're such <laughs> losers, but um, I think most people it's probably a little bit of both are, are right? kind of yeah it might, it might be nine it could be a little bit of both probably ninety percent fed maybe ten idiots who joined it but you can kind of tell <laughs> just because they don't you know they they wear masks everywhere so they're protecting mm-hmm. their identity they don't want to be seen it kind of screams see. that they're that they're uh, hiding something and you know they're trying to get impressionable autistic kids to join and do something stupid but that is something that that will be. um um, you know that will that will go off the rails. Uh Back to Kahani, so he was an FBI informant, and um he also worked with his close friend was this Israeli activist from the sixties and seventies, and I think he died. I think he might be he's not still alive. Joseph Cherba. and they set up different groups to prom- promote the Vietnam War in in Jewish communities. So. Um, basically, they were t- given the task to um, really be super anti-Soviet and make the, and, and, and make the case to Jewish communities that you know the Vietnam War was something that was a, a worthy endeavor. And what they would do is that they would you know they would they would write pamphlets, they would write books, they would they would go to college campuses, start like support you know uh, anti-communist groups in college in college campuses. So that was that was their hustle. Hustle for a while. Um, he co-authored a book called "The Jewish Stake in Vietnam," and basically mm-hmm. it was just a book that kind of just uh, highlighted and went over the main talking points of, of the Vietnam War and and, and uh, you know try try to spin them for a Jewish audience. So um, allegedly, and I don't know, but I was reading this book called, uh, Kahani, the false prophet. And, and this book makes the claim that he was a big, he was a big con artist as well. He lived dual lives. Um, you know, he would scam investors and things like that. He kind of made his living as a con artist. I, again, I, this is just a book that obviously was a character assassination type book, but just, just some points in it. You know, I'm not, I'm not obviously an expert on this. So, um, but he's funded by the U.S. government to some degree. Now, okay. where this story gets interesting is that is it's just looking at the climate in the 1960s. So New York City, 1960s, there's major demographic changes, mainly in the public school systems. In short, blacks and Puerto Ricans start outnumbering white kids in public schools. Okay. And um, New York law was uh, in favor of, of uh, integration. So they you know it was um, you know, this, is, this is about a decade after Brown versus Board of Education. Um, but New York schools schools, and they still are are pretty are highly segregated. And um, there was this huge debate going on in the background between guys like um, like Malcolm X and Milton uh, Gallison. Who are you know arguing against separation, integration, and and you know all all that? We don't need to get into like the civil rights movement, but um, basically what happens to ignite this situation with is um you know is the assassination of MLK. One of the responses after of the of the assassination was that there was a local school board composed mostly of blacks in New York. And they decided to um, terminate the contracts about, of about 13 faculty members uh, in, in a school district. And most of these teachers were Jewish, or faculty members were Jewish. And uh, these, were, these were faculty members who were against uh, things like busing and stuff like that.
0: Integration so, programs, basically. Yeah, integration
1: programs. So to make a long story short, this whole episode leads to this huge teacher strike, and it increases tensions between inner city black people and inner city Jewish people in New York. And this is the climate that the Jewish Defense League is created in. Um, another thing is that allegedly is 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 that there was um, a series of uh, there is some anti-Semitic pamphlets that were being passed around by by groups of black teachers and um, you know there was there is an outcry from from Jewish communities from that so I actually have a quote I pulled this from a a paper about this episode in the 1960s uh, called dreams defended and deferred the Brooklyn school crisis of 1968 by a Jacob Dorman and I'll quote him directly
2: So is that is that that title is that like a play on like I think it's Maya Angelou uh, the What happens to a dream deferred that poem
1: I I don't know probably I would I would assume so so um, I'll just excuse me that's uh, maybe Langston Hughes
2: yeah Langston Hughes What happens to a dream deferred
1: well I'll read I'll read this from I'm going to read directly from this uh, this paper so as As Village Voice journalist Robert Friedman has put it in its founding days, the organization was little more than an anti-black protest movement. Formed during the start of the school strikes in May 1968, the JDL's first action was against a member of the African American Teachers Association, John Hatchett, who was fired from his teaching job for taking students to a memorial program for Malcolm X, and then became head of NYU's new Afro-American Student Center. Student Center in July 1968. Hatchett had earned the ire of the JDL by writing an article in the November-December issue of Forum, the official publication of the ATA, claiming that Jews dominated the New York City school system and along with the uh, deracinated black Anglo-Saxon collaborators, educationally castrated black children. Hatchett's self-defense that he was not anti-Semitic because his family, physicians, dentist, and lawyer were all were all Jews, did little qu- to quiet the ensuing controversy. Having <laughs> begun demonstrating with his protest of NYU's hiring of Hatchett, the JDL began to throw itself seriously and concretely into the struggles to protect Jewish rights. As the 1968 teacher strike dragged New York City and the Jews through an agony of hate that in no way ended up. Ended with the formal conclusion of the strike, as Kahani himself described it. With their intimidating physical presence and willingness to be abrasive and confrontational, Kahani's Jewish Defense League both formed the core of the most vocal and violent opponents of the black community control and also began its use of vigilante violence during the crisis to combat what it perceived as blatant anti Semitism. So, interesting. This. This movement, and we're going to talk about the Jewish Defense League in in New York City and other urban areas. Basically, they're kind of origin stories coming from the civil rights movement. Um, You know, with different neighborhoods. They call them frontier neighborhoods. That was what Mm -hmm. the media used to call them. That was the term. That was the term back in the day. I'm not sure if that's politically correct or not anymore, but whatever. Um, So after this event, the JDL, they start opening up chapters across urban centers in America. And the JDL, as they put it, they're committed to five fundamental principles. So love of Jewelry. So one Jewish people, indivisible and united. From which flows a love for her and the feeling of pain for all Jews, dignity and pride, iron, discipline and unity, faith in the indestructibility of the Jewish people. So, those are the five tenets of the Jewish defense. You got to
2: describe this iron one, though. Sure. So, yeah, I didn't read
1: the description. So, iron, the need to both move to help Jews everywhere and to change the Jewish image through sacrifice and all necessary means, even strength, force, and violence.
2: Okay, so that's that's the kind of one that I was like, oh, you can't you can't
1: skip over that description there. Well, I thought I thought iron. I guess you have to spell it, it out.
2: Yeah, I mean, even still, iron. It's like, okay, well, what does iron mean? And that one, I think, is the the most. You know, I think it's probably the one that I'm focusing on the most, understanding the the entirety of the story, specifically the part that says, you know, um, uh, help Jews everywhere. Uh, by all necessary means, even strength, force, and violence. And this is one of their five fundamental principles. This sounds
1: like the start of a violent group. Well, you would be correct. It is a violent group. Despite that, and maybe it didn't start out that way, or maybe it did, but, you know, it struck a chord with, I guess, urban Jews who felt vulnerable in their neighborhoods. Because they did think they basically kind of acted like, in a sense, the the guardian angels. You ever hear of the guardian angels of New York by Curtis, yeah. who ran, uh, runs Cur- uh, Curtis Leva, There's like a mm-hmm. bunch of who Curtis Leva, who's been um, he, the, the mafia tried to assassinate him a number of times. Right. Um, he he ran for New York. He ran for mayor uh, last year or two years ago. Basically, they were, they were sort of like that, where they'd have like civil patrols to protect elderly people and they do civil service in Jewish neighborhoods. But, you know, eventually things got um, out of hand. So I'll quote from this essay that I found online called Days of Rage Kahani in New York by Jonathan Mark. His J.D.L. was comprised mostly of modern orthodoxies lost boys who loved the Jewish people, parentheses, well, not so much American Jewish people, but Soviet Jews and nationalist Israelis, and they were eager, eager to rumble. Wearing brass knuckles and wielding baseball bats that had spent the summer in bungalows, they were the Jews who couldn't be prouder, and if you could hear us, we'll shout it a little louder. It was so much fun, they shouted a little louder anyway. Uninvited, the JDL stood ready on the steps of Manhattan's temple, uh, Emmanuel, in response to a black group that threatened to show up demanding reparations for what they said the Jews did to blacks. The blacks didn't show up. Kahani let it be known that there was a new Jew on the street, not a nervous Jew, but a tough Jew. How tough? You don't want to find out. So there he's quoting, quoting Kahani. You don't want to find out how tough we are. <laughs> So um, they, they sort of acted as a vigilante group, and, um, you know, eventually they, they move into the realm of uh, political uh, shenanigans. So things like, you know, arms smuggling, um, they, they move on to, to attacking um, Arab diplomatic missions to the U.N., they, you know, they were very anti-Soviet. They bombed, uh, you know, properties owned by Soviet uh, diplomats. Um, they owned facilities that were owned by Soviet, you know, people from the Soviet Union. the The FBI lists the JDL as an official ter- terrorist organization. So I think they they do. So so what's listed on I guess the terrorism database? They they credit. Well, here, the FBI credits at least 37 terrorist attacks to JDL members. And then, um, according to the, the the Historical Dictionary of Terrorism by Sean Anderson and Stephen Sloan, and I'll just quote directly from them, uh, the, US, the United States Central Intelligence recorded 50 such incidents from 1968 to 1987, making the JDL... Second only to the Puerto Rican FAN as a major ter- major domestic terrorist group.
2: So they outdid the Puerto Rican uh, nationalist group.
1: No, they were only they were second to them. Oh, I see. Sorry, Danny. <laughs> uh, nonetheless, the JDL is legally incorporated is a legally incorporated political action group and has officially disavowed responsibility for any violent actions carried out by its members. Bombings accounted for seventy-eight percent of all JDL terrorist activities, shooting and accounting for sixteen percent, while arson attacks, vandalism, kidnapping, threats, and verbal harassment accounted for the rest. So, some of the some of the attacks. That- before
2: you do that, I, I do want to before you talk about what they actually did. I, I want to comment on something. It, they in in the quote you read that the JDL is a legally incorporated political action group and has officially disavowed responsibility for any violent actions carried out by its members. But remember, just a short time ago, I pointed out in their five fundamental principles, the iron principle that uh, aims to help Jews everywhere, by all means necessary, even strength, force, and violence. I don't know. Like... We're about to find out what what these people did, but kind of hard legal argument to make to like try to distance yourself from your members doing violent actions when it's literally in your charter to do violent things.
1: I agree. It's literally in their charter, and um basically the case that's been made is that it's just kind of a stunt that they do. they they officially did valid, but at the same time supported at the same time um, right simultaneously. So some of the things that they've done, and here are some examples of, of, a, of a terror attacks accredited to JDL. So they, in San Francisco in 1981, they uh, bombed a San Francisco branch of the
0: Iranian bank Meli. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
1: They bombed the Iraq UN mission on April twenty eighth, nineteen eighty two. They the JDL planted a bomb in the office of a. This one is really strange. So they planted a bomb in the office of a. Help me out with this word impresario. Ser,
2: impresario.
1: Impresario. A ballet person, right? Those are people who do mm-hmm. ballet instructions or whatever. Right. Or they, they're like the ballet composer or whatever. A ballet choreographer. I should know this since I'm writing a musical, right? Um right. so they this guy was a, a Soviet, I guess he had like good relations with like Soviet uh ballet troops, or maybe he managed a, a Soviet Union ballet company or whatever. I mean, and Russian ballet, so that makes sense. What's that? There's a lot
2: of great Russian ballets, so yeah. that
1: makes a lot of sense. So they they uh they went after this guy for this. And, uh, then there was a, so in 85, they, you know, they, they, uh, assassinated this, this, uh, Soviet political activist. And then I think the big one was on October 11th, 1985, the Los Angeles offices of the Arab American anti-discrimination committee was bombed, killing the director, Alex O'Day. Mm Mm-hmm. So, after Alex O'Day is murdered, uh, Kahani officially disavows the group and he goes to Israel or goes back to Israel. He's going back and forth to Israel at this time. So, um, in Israel, he continues his clandestine activities. Um, but, you know, his first half of his career in, in the States is, is more of kind of like anti integration uh you know the the blacks are coming in our neighborhood type thing Mm -hmm. and um the second half of his career as an israeli is just kind of blatantly uh xenophobic racism against palestinians and arabs so he um he he advocates the expulsion of Israeli Arabs and uh, also Palestinians living in the occupied territories.
2: He doesn't make the distinction because he doesn't believe Palestinians exist.
1: Yeah. And his most, I, I kind of sent you, when we were talking about doing an episode on this, I was like, hey, you got to look at this. And I'm like, let me send you his book. And I just <laughs> <Yeah>. send you <laughs> over a link of the book. And I'm like, just just don't, just open up the link. And then what is the book called?
2: The book, it's, it's literally it's a PDF he sent me. You click on it, you open it up. And it's just like basically a blank page with three words on it. They must go. <laughs> and that's all you need to know about the book. I you can probably figure out exactly what that book is about, given the backstory we've just given you. And I actually started reading it. I think I'm like a third of the way through. It's it's um it's hard to read. <laughs> Let's just put it that way.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, they must go, probably his most famous book. And instead of taking actual passages from the book, like I probably should have, I did something <laughs> better. And okay. I just went on the Amazon site and I looked at I was like, because I saw the reviews and, and the book is actually rated pretty well. It has almost five stars. So I wanted to get an understanding of what the five star rating said. And I'll just read some of them. Absolutely a must read if you want to know the truth about the Middle East and the so-called In uh, quotations, Palestinians, (laughs) the truth can't be hidden. Another one. The truth is hard to accept. We have been living in the reality of the rabbis' prophecies as written years ago. This is not the first time I've read the book, and it has become more relevant as the Islamic bombs keep ticking faster. A fine addition to my library from one of my heroes. You must read it. That's the best one. <laughs> this stand, this book stands against the Palestinian lie and doesn't hold down the lies sp- sp- uh, spoon-fed to us by the Islamic-controlled media. <laughs> Islamic-controlled <laughs> Islamic- Islamic- media? Okay. Myer Kahani <laughs> is a visionary whose words will lead us Jews out of the darkness by the Palestinian, Palestine- the way he wrote it. nazis nazis and the U.N.,
2: That's a new one. I haven't heard of that one. The nazis in the U.N. The Palo-Nazis.
1: Okay. This is a very important book for anyone interested in the survival of Israel, for anyone wanting to understand the modern-day Israeli right, and for anyone wanting a totally new view of the conflict. So please buy it. Read it and give it away. Reach a lot of people. So there's more I encourage people that are interested to read this book not to buy it but rather just find the PDF like we did. Yeah, you can find the PDF (laughs) on archive.com. That's where I found it. Yeah. So, yeah, just just to give you kind of a sense of his uh, political direction. So he caused a lot of problems in Israel. He was arrested dozens of times. Um, he, He actually had written, they must go, while he was in jail. He started a political party called Kach, kach k a c h k a c h kotch and after two failed attempts to being elected to the Knesset he eventually gets a seat in 1984 and um just, just to go over some of his his proposals and just just brace yourself for these here we go so and like sometimes you just laugh yet you have no you're not laughing at the racism. You're just kind of laughing that someone is absurdity. that racist.
2: You know what I mean? It's it's just so absurd. It, like the
1: absurdity of it. Yeah. So I'll I'll, I'll go well, through. I the, might giggle a little bit. The policy I'll just proposals. It, yeah. So a one, a law forbidding the abomination of assimilation and communion with the goyim. The goyim. That's a that's a Yiddish word, isn't it? Goyim, it means it non-Jews.
2: Well, me translate that real quick. It means non-Jews. Non-Jews. Yeah.
1: So is that a pejorative term? It's not. It's it's not a Yiddish term. It's it's in the it's in the Talmud. It's modern
2: Hebrew and Yiddish. A yeah. uh, goy is a term meaning
1: for a gentile, non-Jew. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the abomination Obama- a pejor- It is a pejorative, <laughs> kind, kind of, but it's. It is one of this. So it, the abom- it's just funny written, just seeing it out written. Abomination right. of assimilation and communion with the Goyim. Number two. Um, a mandatory prison sentence for any Arab who had sexual relations with a Jewish girl or woman. Yikes. What about the opposite? I don't know. Can Jews have sexual relations with an Arab? I don't think that's addressed in this, so I'm assuming yes. Huh. But I guess okay. I guess what they're insinuating is that it's rape. So um, I see three a law restricting UN forces from engaging in any type of relations with the Jewish population, and then in addition, Kahani he uh, he he later while he was uh, campaigning. He one of his campaign promises was that he would uh, strip all Israeli Arabs from their citizenship, and then he would uh, work towards expelling anyone who would relinquish it.
2: Hmm. So a little extreme. That that was his, that was his platform. That's what he ran on.
1: Yeah, he ran on he ran on expelling the Arab population in Israel. Okay that was that was his uh party platform basically i mean the arguments were are was hey like we're going to get outnumbered from these people and um they're going to kill us once they outnumber us i mean that was basically what so let's kick them out now so let's kick right? them, yeah now um the israeli government realized they can't have this guy around they said no this is not this is too much um the Israeli government basically dis, um, dismantled his political party. They removed him from his parliamentary post and um, they they uh, put Koch you know they they, indefin- they indefinitely banned Koch under the, the guise of, of uh, them being a, 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 a an openly racist party. Which so, it was. So um, that that is the end of his political career in Israel, um, after going too far, but he, he's, um, you know, his, his influence and, you know, he's kind of never written into the books into any type of history book. And I guess because, you know, just kind of the ugliness of it, but he certainly seems to be a really impactful person. Um, at the very least who did have, I guess, his moment in the sixties, seventies, or I guess mainly in the, in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, and um, it's just an interesting character. It's 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 um, it's it's a really interesting character. So this, so the second part of this, I, I we want to dive into his actual assassination because he's assassinated. And, spoiler alert! <laughs> <laughs> spoiler alert! Well, we we said that in the beginning of the episode, but he yep. is he is he is assassinated. But the people who actually kill him are the not they weren't al-Qaeda at the time but they were they were the they would become al-Qaeda the people who would become al-Qaeda and basically the group that that carried out the first world trade center bombing were the were the same people who who uh murdered rabbi Kahani. Mm-hmm. so um it, you get this really essentially this intersection of freaks and uh yeah i guess why don't we start with our the the people who killed him, I guess. But we can start with, uh, um, yeah, you take yeah. it from here.
2: I gotcha. Uh, so initially when I was doing research on this, I was kind of like trying to approach it with the same angle, you know, of, of storytelling that we did for the other assassinations that we did, like the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which was just a joke. And I... Honestly, I couldn't find a lot of really good play-by-play, you know, retellings of the actual story. So I'm just going to spark notes the story, and instead of, of you know, making this grand story about his assassination, I'm going to talk about what I think is more interesting, which is the people who killed him. And yeah, the the assassination isn't that
1: interesting in itself. He's murdered. He's murdered after a speaking event, right? Yeah, he was. He was
2: speaking uh, uh, in Manhattan. And uh this guy, El Said Noser, he dresses up as an Orthodox Jew, gets him real close, shoots him, allegedly, uh, and then gets away. And on his way to fleeing, he shoots a postal worker, uh, he injures two other people, and then eventually he's caught. And that's that's basically that, right? It's it's not really a, a fascinating story. It's just a quick hit and run. What is fascinating though is this guy El Said. No, sir, and the subsequent trials that he went through, uh, and the different like arguments for and against, you know, whether or not he was responsible for this. So I'll tell you a bit about El Said Nosir. Uh, he was born, um, November 16th, 55. Um, he was born in Egypt in Port Said, uh, and he immigrated to the United States in 1981. He became a citizen in 89. So by the time that he ended up killing, um, uh, uh, Kahani there, he'd only really been a citizen for about a year or so. Um, in the U S uh, no, sir. He held a bunch of random jobs in both New Jersey and New York city. Uh, he worked for the city of New York, uh, in, in like court buildings and stuff. And he was like a, a technician. He repaired like air conditioning units and, and equipment, uh, yeah. in, in like the criminal courts buildings. Um, he ended up marrying a woman who used to go by the name Karen Mills, uh, who's a native of Pittsburgh. She changes her name to Khadijah uh, when she converted from Catholicism to Islam in 82. And they both had two sons, uh, and they raised a daughter as well, uh, who Khadija had from a previous marriage. Uh, one of Nosair's sons um, was born Abdul Aziz El Said Nosair. Uh, who then later changes his name to uh, Zach Ibrahim, which is a, a notably very Jewish-sounding name. Um, and he actually now works as a peace activist and, and released a book, uh, The Terrorist's Son, A Story of Choice, uh, and that was in September t- 2014. If we have some time, maybe maybe we'll talk about him because I, I think it, it he's kind of an interesting guy and I, I like his story, but uh, we'll, we'll focus on, on Nocer for a bit. Um, so sir, he, it, it, it's kind of hard to get the full story on this because, you know, he doesn't really talk a lot, but he, he apparently disliked American culture. Uh, and he, he saw it as basically moral corruption, which was no doubt tied to his cultural and religious background. Um, and, and a little later on in the U.S., he ends up getting involved with the al Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn, and for those who have been listening for a while, and maybe caught some of our episodes on on the series on 9/11 uh, a couple of years back, uh, this is that mosque in Brooklyn that was basically the epicenter of all kinds of terrorist activity, you know, uh, from the you know, World Trade Center bombing and eventually 9/11 and things like that. So, it, it, kind of an incubator, if you will.
1: Um, I live. Here. I live down. I don't. I live pretty close to it. Right. Yeah, it's right on. It's right on um, Atlantic Avenue. By yep. um, not really too far from the land terminal. Yep, still still active today to this day. Yeah, still active. You'll see if you pass by it, if you drive around it, you'll see, um, you know, you'll see women with with um, you know completely dressed from head to toe, uh, hijabs and things in in, in that. Um, but yeah, I mean that was that was the basically the main. Incubator for the original group, the the original, uh, the original troop that, that, that pulled off um, the World Trade Center bombing. yep. uh, The, the, the first World Trade Center bombing.
2: Yep. And, and a little backstory for that, that mosque was uh, uh, supported by uh, Maktab al-Qadamat, which is the, the services office, um, which was established in 1984 by Osama bin Laden and Abdullah Azam from Peshawar, Pakistan. Uh, So, you know, those are the people that were funding it. And uh, apart from other nefarious like plotting and scheming, some of the uh, members of the mosque, uh, including Mahmoud Abu Halima, who you might remember from several of our episodes, and Noser, uh, were seen practicing shooting at the Calverton shooting range on Long Island just nine months before uh, the assassination of Kahani. Now, Obviously nothing wrong with going to the gun range as a lawful American citizen, but you know the fact that No Sayers later charged with shooting Gahani, it's you know it's obviously not a great look and and also part of the evidence that is brought against him. But speaking of the evidence, you know, I think the trial is really the fascinating part of this story for me. And uh, you guys must know already, I've been on a bit of a law kick lately. Uh, So I looked into this trial uh, for the assassination, and I learned a few interesting things. The first fun fact that has nothing to do with really anything, but I just found it fun, is um, apparently Nocer was drawing sketches of Princess Diana instead of paying attention to the court proceedings. I don't know how true that part is, but we're going to go with it because I find that really weird. Um, Just a little fun fact that I found out.
1: Anyway, drawing drawing pictures of Princess Diana—that's what he was doing in the
2: courtroom, apparently, (laughs) from memory, evidently.
1: (laughs) So there's that. That is interesting. It's interesting that some type of uh, identification there, right? It's it's just weird, you
2: know. It looks strange. And I guess Princess Diana was super famous at the time, but like also, like I don't know. I'm not. I'm not going to make assumptions about his character. You can, yeah, have your own opinion on that. But I think it's weird. Anyway, so you would think that that this case would have been like an open and shut case. You know, we've we've got this terrorist, anti-Semitic guy. You know, he kills a noteworthy anti-Arab, also racist Jewish leader. Right there's, and then and then he shoots a postal worker while trying to get away. And like you know and just a few other people as well. You know, so you got a motive, you got a guy fleeing with a gun from the scene of the crime, you shoot a postal worker, there's links to all sorts of Arab terrorist groups, you know, it's this should be simple, but it wasn't. So in, in a quite honestly shocking and very confusing verdict, the jury found El Said Nosair not guilty of killing Rabbi Meir Kahane in that Manhattan hotel. During his first trial. And and they were at it for over three days of discussions, and that jury cleared Nocer of murder and attempted murder charges. Now, they did find him guilty of having a weapon. Also, they found him guilty of assaulting a post officer and some other guy and threatening a cab driver with a gun during his escape attempt. And as you can imagine, the courtroom went nuts when the verdict was announced. Uh, with supporters of both Kahane and Noser reacting super strongly. one uh, Allegedly, one fan of Kahane yelled, Death to Nosere, uh, And all of the Muslims in the room were cheering. And according to his lawyer, Nosair stayed calm, and he just said, Praise be to Allah, when the verdict was read. Take that as you will. It's coming from his lawyer. So his lawyer, by the way, William M. Kunstler, he called the verdict a big win and said it was it was great to see people from different faiths working together on Nosair's defense team, uh, which is true. They they did pull together a, a pretty diverse team to defend Nosair, and he also mentioned that he got a lot of death threats for defending Nosair. But you know, now after learning a little bit more about Kahane's, you know, um, Jewish Defense League, I can imagine. <laughs> I can I can guess who might have been sending those death threats, but you know during that trial Kunstler tried to argue that basically Nocer was set up by people within Kahane's movement, but the evidence honestly didn't have too much evidence to back that up, and even though the jury's decision was kind of confusing, you know it seemed that they were struggling with the fact that none of the fifty-one witnesses that were brought to the stand ever saw Nosser shoot Kahane. Nobody actually saw it. Some witnesses say that Nocer, you know, they saw him with a gun near Kahane after the shots were fired. Uh, They also said that they saw him shoot other people, including that postman, uh, as he ran away, but apparently that wasn't enough evidence for the jury to find Nocer guilty of killing Kahane. There's some other evidence that they looked through. Uh when the police searched his house, they found a bunch of weapons uh, and a list of Jewish public officials. But apparently that also wasn't enough to get a guilty verdict out of the jury. And the judge thought this was totally nuts. Like he, I, I forget the exact words that that the judge used, but basically saying like, this is beyond reasonable, you know, uh, uh, like, like rationality and, 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 ignoring the evidence and stuff like that. He was judge was flabbergasted anyway, but he was, uh, uh, charged and found guilty of some other stuff. Right. Um, and he was, he was sent to something like 15 years of, of prison for the charges that he was guilty of. And he went to Attica state prison in, in New York. And about two years later, prosecutors find some like legal loophole to do a retrial for Nocer in the killing of Kahani. and so they indicted him again two years after the fact. And there was like a big debate around this part, like like is this double jeopardy? Because in, in the United States, you know, if you get uh, um, if there's like a, a case brought up and and that case, you know, you're you're found not guilty, you're they're not allowed to try you again later, even if new evidence is is brought up. But somehow prosecutors found a some loophole. Uh, to do it anyway. And for the first time for this second indictment, uh, it said that there were, there might've been other people involved in the killing of Kahane, uh, even though the head detective in New York police, uh, said that the murder was done by one person, that the new charges that they put on Nosair uh, was basically that a terror group planning to, to attack the U S government and the leader of Egypt was involved so a, a different lawyer for the Nosair family said that the charges were basically the government being mean to Nosair. Uh, you know, he thought that government was trying to drag him into this like Islamic conspiracy theory because they couldn't convict him of murder the first time around. And this is where it kind of starts to get interesting. Um, and and with hindsight, you know, this this is basically true. Um, <laughs> That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. So the indictment said that NOSER met with two guys who were suspects of that World Trade Center bombing and another bombing plot. And they met at Kennedy Airport on the 3rd of January, 1990. So almost a full year before Kahane was killed. And the indictment also said that another guy, Abd al-Aziz Uda, uh, was at that meeting, but they didn't really say much about him after that fact, and they presumed that Uda was dead at the time. Um, the indictment also said that before Kahane was shot, Noser and his spiritual leader, and you might recognize this name, Omar Abdel Rahman, a.k.a. the blind sheikh, that they were talking about building camps for military training and how the Egyptian government wasn't good at stopping Jews from moving to Israel. You know, So there's some some evidence of of antisemitism and 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 some scheming going on there with the blind shake right, and when Nosair was arrested for shooting Kahane, the police ended up found finding some bomb making stuff, so wires, tapes, st- stuff like that at his house, and you know they thought that these things showed that he wanted to blow up an important building and statues, but they you know the investigators didn't even really look at that stuff, they didn't take that into consideration for the first trial, and they didn't really think about taking it into consideration until after the World Trade Center bombing. That's when they, you know, find out that Nosair's friends, the one that he was involved with, you know, were involved in the Kahane case, and then they decided to look in the Kahane case again, like after the World Trade Center bombing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a year after Nosair was arrested and during his trial, uh, this other crazy thing happens. Uh, Nosair's cousin, Ibrahim uh, El Gabroni, something like that, uh, he t- he basically did something stupid and and helped the prosecutors build their second case against Nosir. Uh, he got Ahmad Salem involved and this guy was a former Egyptian military guy who was an FBI informant. We've we've talked about this guy before in the nine eleven episodes,
1: right? Yeah, he was um He's basically the main character in Peter Lance's books, um, about the nine eleven conspiracy. But yeah, I mean he was he was a guy who was able to form kind of a close confidence with the original conspiracy and you know he wore wires and and um and, and all that so um yeah
2: right well well this indictment the second indictment it didn't name Salem directly but uh it did say that he was asked by the blind Sheikh to kill the president of Egypt so that's interesting um Salem also got pulled into plans to help Nosir escape from from Attica State Prison, um, and, you know, was asked to build bombs for the escape. So basically, Nosere's cousin gets links up with this guy, Salim, and says, hey, let's break out my cousin out of jail. Can you build a bomb to help us do it? And this, all the while, this dude's an FBI informant, right? So kind of fucked up there. Um, so during a, a meeting, uh, while uh, Nosere was in prison, Salim and, and Nosser start talking about building bombs, finding safe houses. Uh, they start plotting out his escape plan, also killing Jewish people. Uh, and one of the people that he wanted to kill was a New York State assemblyman um, and uh, and also a judge uh, who put Nos- the judge who put Nosser in prison. Um, the indictment didn't name the assemblyman, but later prosecutors uh, said that it was Dove Heikind, who um, was a Brooklyn Democrat who also used to follow Kahani um so the plot thickens anyway um like these new charges that they brought against Nozer you know said that basically other people might have helped kill Kahane but the the indictment didn't actually name anybody else Or so they said oh, other people helped him but they didn't name anybody and you know some of the clues that that tipped them off about others being involved came from um uh Mahmoud Abu Halima, uh when he was arrested and questioned in Egypt and he ended up saying uh, that another suspect in the World Trade Center bombing, Mohamed Salome, was also part of a plot to kill Kahane. So he starts naming names. And the plan was for Salome to shoot Kahane, and Nosir was just supposed to create, you know, diversionary fire. Honestly, all that stuff is pretty damning evidence um, and helped, you know, their their case against Nosir. But to be fair, uh, a doctor who the U.S. government had examined Abu Halima, in the United States, found burn marks on his groin, which suggests that he had been tortured during his interrogation, which the Egyptians were kind of into at the time, so there's that, right? He might have been just naming names to name names. Hindsight being 2020, it does look like, you know, there were more people involved in this plot, and some people actually ended up getting away, too. Um, some of the jurors uh, who acquitted Nosair after his trial in 1991 said that they had doubts, um, that the prosecutors uh, didn't offer a witness who actually saw him shoot Kahane. Um, but they did some ballistics um, tests uh, and some some experts testified at that trial that the bullet fragments found near Kahane as well as uh, found near a postal worker who was shot outside the hotel Um that, that all of those bullets, fragments, matched the gun that they found on Nocer when he was arrested. And in 1994, uh, Nocer was found guilty in federal courts on nine counts, including seditious conspiracy, murder in aid of racketeering, uh, attempted murder in aid of racketeering, attempted murder of a U.S. Postal Inspection Service officer, Use of a firearm in the commission of murder, use of a firearm during an attempted murder, and possession of a firearm, and he's currently serving life plus 15 years. So the 15 years that he had before plus life on top of that. It's pretty pretty wild. I mean, you know, the fact I think what I found crazy is that that the first time around they they didn't convict him. That the jury let him let him off. Did you find that kind of crazy?
1: Yeah, it's it's nuts.
2: I don't know, it's it's, it's just wild. You know, there, there was like an abundance of evidence. I know that nobody actually saw him do it, but you know, he had a gun, it was running away. He was the only guy that got caught. They found a bunch of damning evidence at his house and they were like, Nah, nobody
1: actually saw him shoot it. There was it. some I'm, Puerto Rican guy. <laughs> some Puerto Rican. You ever see, you ever watch a South Park? yeah with o j. Simpson, <laughs> yeah it's like oh my my it's like my wife was killed by some Puerto Rican guy as well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like our beautiful child was killed by some Puerto Rican guy, <laughs>
2: it's always a Puerto Rican guy, which I just learned uh the f a l n was more uh, a higher listed terrorist organization than the jdL, so maybe it might have been a Puerto Rican guy, who knows
1: I mean. I mean we did an episode on that guy. So if you guys want to listen to that but yeah, Puerto Rican terrorist groups were it's actually funny Tucker Carlson was talking about them the other day. Really? I got to look that up. Yeah. Well, he, he didn't do it. a whole segment on it, but he did, he devoted like two sentences to them. It's um talking about January 6th, like really? This is the biggest act of violence that that was done since the Civil War. It's like yeah. in 19 in 1950s Puerto Rican terrorists tried to try to murder Harry Truman. Or or, uh, fired on Congress. Right, right. I mean, Um, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. That's true.
2: He's not wrong. Um, Listen to that episode, by the way. It is fascinating to hear. Basically, the U.S. drops a bunch of bombs on Puerto Ricans uh, as a result of some of these nationalist groups that came out.
1: U.S. bombs Puerto Rico. That's the series called. It's, It's a history I had no idea ever happened. Right until danny told me about this so listen to that
2: anyway you were talking earlier about um uh about peter lance um and some of his like 9-11 books and i think you know some of the half-baked stuff that i don't really have you know too much intelligent to talk about but i'll bring it up anyway you know um basically 20 years later people like peter lance are starting to find out that you know all of these links to Al Qaeda was real and that, you know, this is like Al Qaeda's first strike on American soil. He he quotes and says, this was the first shot in the war on terror, which is pretty fascinating, which makes this, this whole story kind of even more, uh, impactful, you know, uh, this is the first time that, that a group like this had, had ever taken any, any, um, serious action in the United States. And, um, some FBI documents that, you know, uh, Peter Lance had found showed that Kahani wasn't the original target
1: for. Yeah, it was Sharon was going to be the original. Um, Ariel Sharon was going to be the original. Um, the original target.
2: That's right, right. And Ariel Sharon at the time was Israel's housing and and construction minister, um, but of course, you know, later becomes higher up than that. Um, but apparently, that they they just ditched the operation because they I don't know I think it was like a logistic issue or something like that, and they switched to Kahani because he was like
1: the next best. Yeah, it'd be much harder to to go after Ariel Sharon.
2: Right. Um so you know, he also found that you know that the Manhattan District Attorney um office always said that No was a lone gunman, but that he had found all these documents that showed that he had a getaway driver, uh, and a Jordanian guy that was involved named Bilal Al qaizi uh, who was armed with two guns, which notably neither of those names um that Peter Lance, um, put out are the same names that, um, that, uh, Abu Halima had said was involved. Right. So kind of interesting. It's like Abu Halima spilled the beans about the fact that there was other people involved, but he gave the wrong names, maybe on purpose, maybe not, I don't know. He was probably tortured to get that information. So God knows how, you know, how it came out, but it, you know, in hindsight, it kind of turned out to be true. It was just different people. Um, so Al Qa'izi, uh, the one that that's actually named, uh, was later arrested for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, mm-hmm. um, but for unknown reasons, he was allowed to plead guilty to minor immigration charges, and it was allowed to leave the U.S. and no one's seen him since. And uh, both men um, visited the Al Farouk Mosque, which is how they all you know how this all ties together with that one place. But um, but they were. Apparently, according to Peter Lance and in his investigation, uh, they were with No on the night of the murder. So it's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, so it's um just to- it's a totally bizarre story, man. Super weird. How these inter how these intersect with each other and, and then again I guess the to, to end it, just to tie a bone it, uh you know, my Ma- Maier Kahani really is like the to some degree, is kind of one of those axes that the world turns around. It's, Certainly,
2: the the world in Israel right now, you know, the, with world, the rise of of far right wing groups, you know.
1: But even at the time, just you know, his his death kind of sets off this chain of events that bleeds really to an American war on the Islamic world, at least the Islamic world and in Iraq. In sure. Syria, and Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, I mean, in without the, M- the killing <sighs> of Nir Kahani, you know, Sarah wouldn't have gone to prison. I mean, maybe he would have later for other things, but, you know, Salem wouldn't have been in bed. The, the FBI informant wouldn't have gotten in with that group to try to bust him out of jail, you know? And, you know, probably it would have been harder to figure out and embed themselves within... You know, uh, with those groups that did the World Trade Center bombings and eventually nine eleven. So, you know, you're right. It's kind of a turning point.
1: Yeah, I mean, like mo- like most books on um, on nine eleven, they kind of start out with with his assassination as like the first as you know they'll start with uh, like looming tower, for example. First mm-hmm. chapter, first part of the book is all about the Afghan Arabs. Osama bin Laden's lifestyle uh, backstory then it mm-hmm. goes into all right now they're making a splash and you know they they uh, you know facilitated and you know uh, financed the assassination of Kahani so it's and then it goes on to you know some of their other attacks later on but um, yeah it's just it's an, an interesting story and I felt like I was just you know personally interested in just learning more about them over the past couple of weeks so Figured that we'd do a show on the topic and we, we hope that you learned something. You want to end this right now because it is late as hell and I'm <laughs> getting kind of tired and I yeah. we're, we're talking about too many sensitive uh, subjects to be tired and drowsy while yeah. talking. So I feel like we should cut ourselves off.
2: Yeah, that sounds like a good idea.
1: Okay. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. If you want to help our show, Remember to please fill out the survey in the show notes, the Survey Monkey Survey. It is number one way you can support our show. Please fill it out. It only takes a couple of minutes. If you fill it out, you just put your email at the end, and then you have a chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card. So uh, do that. It helps us. You can also rate and review the podcast. That is another way you can greatly support the show. So rate and review. And then you can also join our Patreon where you you get access to our super cool Slack channel, early episodes, uh, bonus episodes. We have a series on the Russian Revolution in there, um, something that we've been working on forever. And um, we hope to see you there. Danny, is there anything else you would like to add? Nope. Okay. Bye, guys, and glory to Gorkistan. (laughs) Peace.